Welcome to the Recovery Edgecast. My name is Alfredo, and I'm an alcoholic. Over the weekend, I had the pleasure of recording Michael Scherer's story in Loveland, Colorado. Michael has been a part of my AA life since pretty much the beginning. He sat down with me for hours, sharing his experience, strength, and hope, and I'm forever grateful. He helped sponsor me early on and really gave me my running shoes in the AA program. I love the guy, and it was a real pleasure to hear his story again. I hope you all enjoy. Thank you. I'm Michael. I'm an addict alcoholic. So, my first drink probably occurred almost before I even realized that I was drinking alcohol. Um, My family used to get together for most any event, holidays, uh, birthdays, and such like that. And whenever my family got together, there was always alcohol present. As soon as I could reach a coffee table or any table at all, I was able to drink. There there were just drinks available. And, you know, there, there was one time where we had some friends of the family over and they looked over and my brother's kid was drinking alcohol and they looked over and they took a big aversion to it and they said, hey, that kid's drinking alcohol. And my brother looked over like, you know, what's the big deal? And they said, well, you know, he's, he's just developing. And my brother said, yeah, he's developing a thirst. So that's pretty much what I was introduced to. And there was one time where, uh, obviously, you could probably tell already that I I have a New York accent, but um, we used to live in a city in Brooklyn. And we would go upstate New York every summer for the, uh, the summer months. It just got a little bit too hot in the city. So we would go up to different bungalow colonies. And um, so it was either a Memorial Day weekend or a Labor Day weekend. And all the adults had this great idea to uh, you know, get plenty of bottles of alcohol and cases of beer and such that like that. And I have a brother who's three and a half years older, two older cousins, and we got this great idea to take some of the alcohol and drink it behind the bungalows. So somewhere between the ages, maybe five and seven, five and eight, is the first time that I actually remember catching a buzz. You know, it was very noticeable to me at that point. Um, my older cousin got very drunk, as did my brother, who was three and a half years older than I. And my uncle took, uh, he, he had a big objection with it and actually uh, started beating up my cousin. Um, really laid into him. But anyway, 
My parents separated when I was 12. We moved from one neighborhood to another right then to help distance the parents. And when we moved to this other neighborhood, I remember that I went down to the park, um, being that I had no father figure in the house to sort of, you know, herd me in or kind of rein me in. And I remember that we were sitting in a big circle, passing around a quart bottle of beer. And immediately, I realized that I wanted my own quart. And then I started drinking, you know, quarts of beer regularly, sometimes, you know, a couple, two, three, four of them in, in one sitting. And then I started drinking these uh, exotic wines, Bally High and Thunderbird. <laughs> and uh, that shit tasted so bad. But I just remember that I would like force feed myself the stuff, just get it down. Because I was really, at that point, definitely drinking for the effect. Uh, there were, you know, we hear in these rooms all the time the concept of social drinking. And, you know, I'll touch on that again. But I, I never really was what I think a, a social drinker. So anyway, um, around the age of 12, when we had moved to that new neighborhood and the parent was basing, my dad was out of the house, um, it was almost like, well, hey, I was born in 54, so in 66, it was just starting the explosion of uh, the psychedelic er era and uh, the whole concept of drugs, sex, rock and roll. And I feel that I caught it just right, almost like I was surfing and I got out right in front of the wave and then just rode it for 25, 26 years, every morning, afternoon, and night. So around the age of 12, started drinking every day. And shortly thereafter, started smoking pot, sniffing glue, doing ups, downs, hallucinogens. And again, you know, please keep in mind that I introduced myself as an alcoholic and an addict. But for me, alcohol was really just one more way to get altered. Uh, I drank all the time, but I did everything else all the time also. And then around the age of 14, I remember that I used to frequent one of the pool rooms in New York. And at 14, I, I wasn't supposed to actually go into the pool room till I was 16. But by then, I already had a mustache, and uh, they didn't really ID me at the time. So I started hanging out in the pool room, and I remember that one of the older kids, but of course everybody was older, came over to me. And I had been buying pot and hash from him, and he said to me, he said, you know, 
uh, you could deal. He said, you know, I'll give you eight or nine nickels a hash, and you only have to pay me for five. And it seemed like a great idea. But even back then, I couldn't afford my high. I just couldn't. And um, so after starting off, you know, at 14, already dealing, for the next 24 years, I never had a shortage of anything. I mean, anything. And um, it got to the point where if I just listed all the stuff that I had consumed, we'd use up the hour just me telling you the names of, you know, nebutols and seconds and tuinols and quaaludes and valium and, you know, on and on. But it was the same thing with speed and acid and, and everything. And of course, with everything that I was drinking. I got into uh, not just the cheaper wines at that point, but started um, drinking most anything that was available. And again, as long as there was something there to consume, I just kept going, just kept going round the clock. And I've always had the type of energy level where, and I still today do that. I'll tell people, hey, if you can't get it done in a 24-hour day, work nights. And it was so common for me to just go around the clock and, and just keep going. So anyway, again, the progression and it seemed like on the front end, thank you, seemed like on the front end, I was able to make a decision. Like, oh, today I'll drink, or today I'll smoke, or today I'll pop pills, or today I'll trip. But after a while, the decision-making process just went away, because if it was there, I was doing it. So anyway, fast forward a little bit, probably about 40 years ago, I was living in Louisville. At the time, I was working for Storage Tech. And I used to work from 3.30 in the afternoon until midnight. And then as soon as midnight came along, myself and all my coworkers would drive as fast as we could from Storage Tech on that one little back road up to the track end. And the bartender knew that we were coming. I mean, we showed up every night, me and my wrecking crew, so to speak. So he would have a picture of kamikazes every foot or two feet down the bar in preparation for us to come in. And I wanted to consume as much alcohol as I could in an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes before they called the last call. 
So I got pretty proficient at it. I think I got up to like 46 or 48 kamikazes in an hour and a half, which, you know, certainly could have been a lethal dose. But the crazy thing is, as soon as they called last call, it was like, where are we going when the bar closed? And I remember one time we left, and we were driving at that point to somebody's house because he was having a kegger. And one of my friends had gotten so drunk at the bar that as he was driving there, he drove off the road through somebody's fence and drove right into somebody's house. But, you know, it wasn't me. I just kept going. I made it to the kegger. <laughs> but I got there and started drinking. And incredibly, in a short period of time, we drank that keg dry. And then I ran around, and I was grabbing all the cups that were on the tables that were two-thirds full, half full, a quarter full, and just kept drinking again. So, you know, again, that's just the pace that I had. Incredibly, I never really had DUIs or never really had blackouts. And because I didn't have blackouts, because I wasn't living under a bridge, because I wasn't physically injecting drugs into my body, then I didn't think that I was an alcoholic or an addict. You know, the, the thought of even having a problem never really entered into my mind. Always seemed like I was coping, but then occasionally, occasionally, there would be a small consequence. And I remember that I, I used to think about it almost like those little baking accessories, you know, like a little sand in an hourglass. The sand would be going down, and all of a sudden I would see myself almost in a, in a free fall. And incredibly, I was able to like flip the, the egg timer over and sort of like a cat end up on my feet and then started going down again in the vortex. And so, you know, over a period of time, there was some consequences. First consequence that I remember was at 14, ate some sleeping pills with some of my friends. And a cop stopped us on the street and thought that we were public, publicly uh, intoxicated. So they started hassling one of my friends. And I'll mention his name now because, one, I miss him, but it was the first casualty. This was Alan Hollander. And, uh, so he was a street kid, and they wrestled them to the ground and did something almost like a George Floyd where they put their knee on his neck. And at 14, he ended up uh, suffocating and dying from asphyxiation. It was the first friend that I lost to this disease. There was some gal that I was dating around 16 or 17, Marianne Zane. And uh, she dropped some acid and jumped out a window. 
It was right after that that one of the guys that I would occasionally partner up with, Alan Broser, we used to call him Stella, but um, he was doing a drug deal and they didn't want to pay him. They pushed him down an elevator shaft. So, you know, if I just keep going, unfortunately, I wouldn't do all my friends' honor. I would forget a lot of names because there were a lot of people that over the years I've lost. And it's incredible that I'm really here to, uh, to talk about this. I'm really blessed. But so anyway, at one point, I uh, had touched on earlier where consequences started playing in. And again, please understand that I'm trying to explain or at least do the what it was like. Then we'll get into what happened, what it's like now. But I want to convey just the, the level of my usage because I really feel that if I can get sober, anybody can, truly. Anybody can. So at one point, just to sort of finish up that one segment, I drove from Louisville to Boulder, and I sold an ex-girlfriend a half a gram of cocaine. And she immediately mixed it up and handed me a pipe. And you know she was freebasing. And 35 hours later, 35 grams later, I went home and lied to my ex-wife as to where I was. And she half believed me, you know, out of love, respect, whatever. I mean, why she believed me, I don't know. But uh, a week later, we had another episode where I went back to this gal's apartment and sold her half a gram, and this time 45 grams later, 45 hours later, I went home. And as I was driving on that Highway 36 and coming up that hill to Louisville, I was hurting. I was really hurting. And I felt like I couldn't even swallow. I mean, if I would have tried to swallow even like a cap full of water, I would have had a problem because I in inhaled like so much flame. But the thing that hurt the worst was that I had run out. I mean, if I still had shit, I'd still be sitting there. I mean, I never left when, when there was anything there. So anyway, I drove back to Louisville, and I called up my ex. And I said, you know, I lied to you a week ago. And she says, yeah, I know. I want you to sell the house. I want you to move out. So I moved out of the master bedroom, moved into the guest room in my own house. And I managed to put together about five or six days sober. And I remember she came to me and she said, you know, we might be able to work through this if you go in for a treatment. And I said that I would, but I was just hoping to placate the situation. I just wanted her to like sort of back off. And then the day was again there for me to go and I remember that I was folding up a couple of pairs of pants, a couple of shirts, and in my pair of pants, I found $40, and I called her up. She was at work, 
And she said, what do you want? I can't talk to you now. I'll talk to you when I get home. And she hung up. When she came in the house, she walked up the stairs, didn't even look in the guest room, jumped in the bathroom, brushed her teeth, washed her face, and she laid down. And I walked down the hallway, and I knocked on the door. And she was like, what do you want? I can't tell you where I'll be in a month. I can't tell you where your kid's going to be. I'm not paying the car payment. And no, we're not sleeping together tonight. And I knocked on the door again. And I stuck my head in the room. And I said, I don't know how you did it. But I'm going into treatment for me. And I don't even care if you're here when I get out. I'm going in for myself. And I remember I surprised a lot of people driving up to Estes Park, went up to Harmony. And as I was getting out of the car, I had something like a nervous breakdown. Just didn't want to walk in there. I was under the misconception of what it was going to be like. I thought it was going to be like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And that I was going to go in there and meet Nurse Ratchet, you know, and that's about what I expected. And I remember I walk in and they sort of check you from head to toe with a few stops in between. And then I was standing there in the kitchen and it felt like the, the air in the room got very heavy. And all of a sudden the realization, almost like a two by four right between the eyes, I was like, look what your life has become. Here you are in a treatment center, alcoholic, addict, loser. And I really felt that I needed a big rubber stamp from my forehead, that I was a loser. And I remember as I was standing there in the kitchen and just sort of feeling a little bit forlorn, I reach in my pocket and jeans have those little side pocket where you put your coins in. And incredibly, I, I stick my finger in there and there was a snow seal with about two grams of cocaine. And they had missed it when they checked me out. And I stood there and I knew that they were gonna take my vitals the next day and everything else. And I don't know what possessed me, but I took it and I threw it in the trash can. And I remember I went into a meeting and people were talking and sharing and it was all new to me. And I, I had all this great feedback. And at one point the counselor looked over me, over to me and she says, Michael, if you have all the answers, why are you here? And it kind of pissed me off. It did. You know, here I, I was not talking to hear myself talk. I was trying to give constructive criticism to these other people. And then at some point, she looked over and she said, how are you feeling? And I said, I'm pissed off. I'm hurting. And she said, pissed off? And I said, yeah. I said, she said, hurting? I said, yeah. She said, why don't you just sit there and shut up and feel the pain? And incredibly, I started flashing on the pain of when my dad used to kick my ass as a kid 
and what it felt like to be in the guest room in my own house. And after a few moments, I just came undone. I was sitting there overwhelmed with pain. And then when the meeting broke up, I walked over and I sat down in a corner off to the side, kind of isolating. I think I was sitting underneath like an elephant head in Estes Park in, in, in Harmony. And she came over and she says, how you doing? I said, you know, I'm not doing too good, I'm still hurting. And she said, you see that bell over there? You go over and you ring the bell and you call all your peer group back in the room and start talking about feelings. So there was one point where I was in a meeting and I remember I was looking out the window there and they were talking about higher power. And I was about five or six days straight at that point. And I had all these poisons and toxins leaving my body. I've been getting high for 25, 26 years. And just felt like my head was going to explode, just sweating and hurting. And as they were talking about a higher power, the only thing I wanted was for everybody to shut up. But I remember there was a deer running across a field. And I looked at this animal and I said, look at that, you know, here's, I'm a person, this is a deer, I'm supposedly a higher life form than this animal. But right then, at that point, that deer was more in the rhythm of life than I was. And I just remember that. So then, the next day, my counselor gave me this pamphlet to write on, and it was King Baby and Grandiosity. And I remember I read that, and then I threw it across the room. And I was like, well, gee, you know, this is just a little piece of homework. Let me just read this pamphlet, write a few things about it, and I'll be done with it, and I can move on. And I picked up, and I read the pamphlet, and I threw it across the room. And then I was sitting there and saying, you know, why am I having such a tough time? I've already admitted I'm an alcoholic and an addict. I've already accepted it. God damn, I, you know, I'm, I'm in a freaking treatment center. What more do these people want from me? And I remember I picked up the pamphlet and went to write on it again, threw it across the room. And I storm out of my cabin and I go over to the phone in, you know, the big building. And I call up my ex, and she's like, what's got you so upset? And I started reading some of these things in the pamphlet. And she says, you know, some of those things might apply. I said, hey, screw you. You know, hung up the phone. I was really pissed, really pissed. And that night, I went to sleep in my bunk bed. And I woke up, and I had a using dream. And when I woke up, I was certain that I had gotten high, certain. And I just remember thinking that my conscious being had accepted, admitted, was complying, and my subconscious was still not, because here I'm using it while I'm sleeping. So I figured that I needed to surrender. And to me, surrender was an alien concept. I mean, it wasn't even in my vocabulary. You know, I grew up in New York, and 
parents separated when I was 12, and everything in my life was survival mode. So to surrender, again, but, so I took a white tissue or a napkin, and I remember that I would wave it as I walked through the hallway, just for the antics of, hey, I surrender. You know, just going through the motions, hoping beyond hope that I could surrender. And then the weekend came and went, and my counselor said, how are you doing today, Mike? And I said, I said, hey, king baby, grandiosity. I said, that, that's me, you know? I remember that I was going to sleep at night, and I was in my bunk bed, I was in the top. And as I was falling asleep, I'd look up at this drop ceiling and imagine that I could look up into the heavens, and I'd go, thy will. Not mine be done. I surrender. And I just kept doing this until I fell asleep. And I had something like a burning bush experience those days. And then, you know, counselor again asked me how I was doing. And I said, hey, I got to read all these letters from family members and friends, how I had minimized the effect on other people. And I remember I pick up a letter and I said, this is from my brother. And hey, my brother's three and a half years older, and I have a picture of he and I, and I'm sitting in his lap, he's got his arms around me, and this is the way I remember him my whole life. He's the greatest big brother, I've loved the man even if he wasn't my brother, and I start reading this letter. And it goes on to say that he's had different emergencies and crises in his life, and he didn't come to me because he didn't think I would be available for him. And I remember as I was reading the letter, I'm saying, gee, you know, here's this great relationship, and it's only 50%, 25%, 10% as good as I had envisioned. And as I was reading the letter, I'm, I'm holding it, and it's like, and I'm crying, and then somebody in the room says, well, gee, Mike, you know, this is an older brother. And I go, yeah. And they said, you still see him? I said, yeah, and he lives here in Colorado? And I go, yeah. My counselor was standing there, and he's, he's sort of looking off in this way. And he turns around, he says, you know, you're all missing the point. And everybody said, what are you talking about, Mitch? He read the letter, we're asking him questions. And he says, hey, Mike, how does it feel to be such a shit, not be there for your brother? And I went back to a gut level. Some woman in the room said she had treated her sister the same way. And then the whole room went to sort of a gut level. I remember as the meeting broke up, we were walking out of the room, and Mitch turned to me and he says, you know, you, you broke through today. So there's been, you know, like a lot of breaking through moments. There was one time where I had to do another homework assignment. It was called the KAF, the kinds of things I did, the amounts, the frequency, and that really put shit in perspective. You know, it made me think that I was like a, a dumpster and just shoveling shit into my body all those years. So there was one time where Mitch was walking towards me, and guys have a funny way of greeting each other. You know, they usually do this little head bob and stuff like that. And as I was walking down the hallway, he was walking towards me, and I'm giving him this little high sign. And as he walks past me, he's sort of shaking his head, and he goes, totally unmanageable. 
And I look at him as he walks by, and I go, yeah, Mitch, you're a counselor in a treatment center. You're 14 years sober. You checked back into treatment at eight years because you wanted to just work on issues. And here you are walking with step one, totally unmanageable. And I remember looking at him like he was larger than life. Really, you know, struck a chord with me. So in treatment, they sort of encourage you to do your steps. And I remember that I started writing my fourth step. And as I was writing it, I was afraid to put all the shit on paper. It was almost like I was going to sign a confession or writing a deposition. And I remember that I would just write one or two or three four-word sentences. So it meant something to me, but I really wasn't spelling everything out. I remember I did a lot of pages, and I handed it to the chaplain up there. And he looked at it, and he could tell I had done a lot of work, and he handed it back to me, and he says, anything on this list that's pretty bad? Well, I said, well, yeah, this, this, and this. And he said, anything else? And we went on for a while. And he said, anything not so bad? And I said, yeah, you know, I guess this and that. And he goes, okay. He says, do you believe in God? I said, yeah, I guess so. He says, a high power, great spirit, you know. Can we call him God? I said, sure, let's call it God. And he said, so this God, is he all powerful? I said, yeah, God can be all powerful. And he says, all loving? I said, yeah, a God, all powerful, all loving. Yeah, he could be that also. And he said, all forgiving? I said, yeah, sure. All powerful, all loving, all forgiving, yeah. And he said, do you think God can forgive you for what's on this paperwork? I said, yeah, I guess God could do that. And he says, can you forgive yourself? I said, you know, that's where the problem is. I said, there's a lot of shit on this list that I'm just not too proud of. And he said, well, let's ask God to forgive you. And let's ask this God to give you the ability to forgive yourself. And I remember that we took this paperwork and put it in a little hibachi with lighter fluid and threw a match on it and offered it up to this God. When I was leaving the chapel and walking back to the main building, it rained for like 10 or 20, maybe 30 seconds. It was very powerful because I felt like I had been sprinkled with holy water or something. I mean, it really struck a chord with me. So by the time I got out of treatment, I was afraid to come back out into the real world. It was a scary place. Every tabletop, my driver's license, a pen, my key, the bathroom sink in my own house, my dresser in front of the TV. I mean, the whole world was paraphernalia. And um, I remember that I came out, and I was so used to doing multiple meetings in a day. So I said, well, I'll just hit the 7 AM meeting. And I got up, and I ran out of the house and jumped in the car, and the car wouldn't start. And I remember saying, what am I going to do? And I called up one of my old using buddies, and he came over, and he jumped the car. And I said, hey, 
I can't thank you the way I used to, and I got to get out of here and jump in the car and drive off. And I get to the meeting, and there was like 10 minutes left. And I just said, hey, I'm Michael, alcoholic addict, and I'm glad to be here. Next morning, I got up, and the car wouldn't start, and I had a flat tire. And I remember just looking up in the sky, and I said, hey, I'm really being tested, you know? Because I hadn't really purged all the shit that I had in the house. I didn't throw out the bottles or, you know, most anything. And, but I got to that meeting, and there was like five minutes left. And again, I said, you know, Michael, I'm an addict alcoholic. And glad to be here. I ended up doing 94 meetings in 90 days. Went to six months worth of aftercare, which turned into nine months took a service position. I was a GSR, the general service rep, for a meeting. And I remember that I, had a, I didn't know what I had been volunteered to do. But all of a sudden, I had to take the group consensus and bring it to a district level and then bring the, the concerns of the district back to the group. And, I remember thinking, gee, you know, I, I got to get to this meeting for this GSR, and I don't want to be late. So I, I remember driving from Boulder over to Gun Barrel, and I got there. I was over on Spiny Road, whatever, and I was certain I was in the right church parking lot, but there were no vehicles there, and there was nobody there. I remember I panicked. I didn't have a cell phone at the time, and I drove to the King Supers over there, and I remember I ran in and was using their phone, and somebody had scribbled on the wall, if you think what you always thought, you'll get what you always got. I was saying, gee, that's an interesting thing. Maybe I needed to see that. But anyway, I called up somebody, and they said, hey, Mike, you know, you're early. The meeting's not till next week. <laughs> so anyway. I, uh, I've had an interesting time in AA because incredibly now, I've been sober longer than I was getting high. God willing, in March, March 2nd, I'll have 30 years. That's an incredible thing. I mean, I never envisioned that on the front end. Now, you know, I usually tell newcomers, first of all, you have no idea how good it can get. I mean, we all walk in and we all know what it was like to come in these rooms and sort of be like, look what the cat dragged in. I mean, we all sort of just like come in and our hair is all mixed up and we got that oily skin and the bad breath and one eye is going this way and the other is going this way and, you know. You know, I remember that feeling of being like a deer in the headlights. And um, so I always, whenever... I'm in a meeting, and they say, anybody willing to sponsor? I raise my hand all the time, all the time, because sponsorship and an alcoholic working with another alcoholic is truly the backbone of this program. 
you know, it's worked for 85 plus years and uh, for countless people. My sponsor, I remember in early sobriety, he told me things like you go from step one to step two, to step one to step three, to step one, step four. And he says, you always go back to step one. And he said, you need to do three meetings. You do the meeting, but you do the meeting before the meeting, and then do the meeting after the meeting, and hang out with winners. And I've gotten to the point where when I meet somebody, I always give them my phone number, and I say, hey, at 10 o'clock at night, midnight, 2 in the morning, 4 in the morning, you might be feeling pretty good right about now, but if you're struggling at that time, before you pick up a drink or a drug, pick up the phone. And I'll take a call at any time, any time. So, you know, the sponsor that I had, he had what I wanted. I remember he would talk about his kids, and he would talk about taking other guys out on these you know, trips up to Canada or Alaska, and he would take them out on these rafting trips and uh, take them out fishing and to some of these really remote places. And I was thinking, you know, hey, this is a man's man. This is, you know, somebody, he has what I want. But after all the years that we were together, it got to the point where whenever I seen him, it was almost like, no time had passed. We were there, and as soon as I started talking to him, it was always just straight from the shoulder. I would tell him what was happening in my life. He would quickly tell me what was happening in his. And occasionally, if I had an issue or something, he always had the most simplistic way of dealing with it. In the latter years, he had health concerns. He started going blind in one eye, and he was on dialysis. And then at some point, he made a decision that he was going to quit the dialysis. And I remember turning to him and saying, hey, you know, from my vantage point, it looks like, almost like you have allergies or you have uh, arthritis or something. You, you seem to, for me, uh, you still have your good days and bad days. And he said, Mike, sometimes I have a few good hours in a day or a few good minutes, he said, but I don't want to burden my family and everything. And he made this decision. And I remember that I seen him in one meeting, and afterwards we started talking, and he had already turned on his clock. I mean, his clock, his egg timer was running. And yet he took the time to still talk to me. And I miss him. And I remember being at his service, his funeral. And the, it was almost standing room only. There were a lot of people there. And I came to find out that he had sponsored over 100 people. And incredibly, I didn't even know that he had sponsored a second person. I mean, for me, I always felt that he was there for me when I needed him. I didn't need to see him every day. I didn't need to talk to him on the phone every day. But it was a comfort just knowing that he was there if I needed to reach out or send up a flare. 
So, for whatever it's worth, over the years, I think I sponsor now somewhere between like 40 and 50 people. And a lot of them have slipped into somewhat like a dormant stage. I mean, some of them still pop back in occasionally. Sometimes I'll hear from them. Sometimes they go out. A lot of times I'll call if I don't hear from them, or I'll send them a text and stuff like that. But, you know, if somebody is drowning in this disease, do you throw them a big book like it's a life preserver and say, oh, read this page? A lot of it, I feel, is that human contact. Spending time with somebody, talking to them in a parking lot when it's snowing outside or raining and just sitting there and just keep going or maybe going to a Perkins and killing a pot or two of coffee or stuff like that. Sometimes all we need is just a sober perspective again. You know, I think that sometimes it's almost like we, we get de derailed, almost like a train. And we just need somebody to put us back on the tracks, so to speak. I had something like that happen not too long ago where I went to a meeting and somebody said, oh, uh, in the format, this is where I qualify myself now. So I got to tell you how I... Uh, how I'm an alcoholic, and he started talking, and as I was listening to him, I said, shit, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. I said, what a fucking weird thought, you know. I, you know, I got high for 25, 26 years, and I've been sober now 26 years, and it really, it threw me off. I felt like I had lost my mojo, you know. I, I didn't, I wasn't centered like I'm usually accustomed to doing. So now I find that if you can develop an attitude of gratitude, gratitude is one of our single best tools in this program. I usually tell people, hey, if you're going to put things on your gratitude list, don't limit it to a house, a boat, a car, a plane, a motorcycle, a relationship, because your list is going to be kind of short. I said, if you're willing to put small things on this list, it's incredible how long your list can get. So if you can develop an attitude of gratitude, if you can get to acceptance, where you have gratitude and you have acceptance, then incredibly, you can actually achieve something called serenity. Thanks again, Michael, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. And thank you, listeners, for checking us out. Remember, you can find more of our episodes at recoveryedgecast.com. We're also on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to check out your podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.